touchdown. And when you filled out your brackets, how many of you wrote down Seton Hall and Michigan for the final Monday? I Goes mean, for it, but it's Seton Hall's ball. Walker was standing right there. Seton Hall, three of ten. They've taken seven from three-point land, but Ramos with a layup. And Green answers as to who's the sharpest point. If Seton Hall can thank anybody for being in this championship game, it is Green who brought him right from disaster against Duke and led that club very well. Off with it, and Morton coming back in the middle now. Morton will try to go all the way for the layup, and he does, and the Hall back in the middle of it. Billy, you the ball game. Seegan Mills makes it tough to throw the line drive pass. Starts win touch. Long pass. Walker and Green battle. Walker fires up. It's over. Michigan has won a national championship. And for the third time in the last eight games, it has been decided by one point. The Wolverines win an NCAA title over Seton Hall, a tough opponent all the way. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Pirate Rewind. I am your host for this week's edition, Heaven Hill. Joining me, we have Michael Daly and a special guest pertaining to this episode, Sal Petruzzi, former WSOU sports director and also the man who was on commentary for the entirety of this 1989 championship run that we'll be discussing today. So before we get started, Sal and Michael, I have to know, how are you guys doing today? Uh, having doing great. Probably the first and only time I'll ever be called a special guest. And uh, it's great to be with both you and Michael today. I have to agree with Sal. The fact that we have someone from this run, it's amazing because I remember the moment I applied to Seton Hall, that 1989 season, I saw pictures of it. I've heard people talk about it. But the fact that we have someone who essentially is a primary source, it's phenomenal that we get to really dive in and get a different perspective other than what the history books say. We get someone who is there. Without question, Michael. I mean, over the years, we've read stories and we've obviously seen the, the history and, and we've even watched some moments from that championship run. But like you said, being able to, to pick the brain of someone who not only was there, but had the, the chance, the opportunity to broadcast all of those games during that run. I'm sure it was just a tremendous opportunity. So, I mean, let's just get right started. So first things first, Sal, uh, obviously heading into the season, I'm not sure if anyone really saw this team being in the national final at some point. So just could you give us an idea of, of what the thoughts were heading into the season? Obviously the year before you went 22 and 13, lost in the second round of the NCAA tournament. So, uh, Emotions were high, and obviously there was a lot of buzz heading into the year. But just, just give me an idea of, of where you were as a, a fan and obviously as the sports director that year. Like, what, what were your thoughts heading into that season? Well, you know, we, we were coming off the, the first NCAA tournament appearance ever by, by Seton Hall. Uh, but we lost Mark Bryan, who was a, a number one draft pick by the, the Trailblazers um, in the NBA. And we knew the team was returning a lot of um, players, uh, uh, you know, a lot of seniors. Uh, Anthony Avent was going to be a new addition after sitting out his freshman year. And, and Anthony was one of the top players in, in the state of New Jersey. And he went on to a brilliant career at Seton Hall and in the NBA. And then, you know, we had this guy coming in from Australia, Andrew Gaze, that not a lot of us, you know, knew a lot about him other than, you know, he had this great reputation for being a, a, a terrific player. Um, 
they were they were picked, I believe, seventh by you know a lot of the the you know the, the different polls, the coaches poll. And I always thought they would be a little better than seven, but you know, clearly no one could have envisioned, you know, a run like they had. But I think early on, and and you know, I was a, a student just like both of you, sports director uh, of the station, and we were very very fortunate that we were able to get the funding, and we traveled out to the Great Alaska Shootout. And I think WSOU, and I think maybe Tom Lucci of the Star Ledger, we might have been the only. Uh, media from New Jersey uh, who who went on the trip and early on we got to see what this team was really all about uh you know beating Utah beating Kentucky and beating a Kansas team that was coming off an NCAA championship but you know they they did lose their their best player and they did lose their coach you know Danny Manning and Larry Brown it was Roy Williams first year but right out of the gate we recognize something that this team is is a really good basketball team. No stars, just really good players. And I think that storyline continued to play out all year long, that this was going to be a team that would be led by defense, that night after night somebody would step up. They could put the ball in the hole. Um, but this was going to be a, a team that had a lot of success because they played like a team. And, and I'm not sure if I've ever seen a team come together over the course of 30 some odd games, you know, in the manner that uh, the Seton Hall Pirates in 88, 89 did. You know what, Sal? I see a lot of similarities in PJ Carlissimo's trajectory to someone like Bill Raftery. Bill Raftery had a little bit of a slow burn starting his tenure at Seton Hall, but then started to get some success. But the thing with PJ is that he brought the program to new heights that they didn't even really have with Honey Russell. From your perspective, being there, especially that season, what was it like being around the team and being and being around PJ Carlissimo? Well, that's that, that's a great point, Michael. And and you know, just like both of you, we were students first and foremost, so we would see the players in class. I had classes with you know, John Morton, for example, um, we got to know the fellas on the team. Um, PJ could not have been more accommodating to the staff of WSOU before every game. We had an interview with him. Think about that for a second. The, the head basketball coach of a Big East college basketball team donating 15, 20 minutes of his time every, every game to the student radio station. It's unheard of. Uh, after the game, we would have one of the assistant coaches, whether it was Bruce Hamburger, whether it was Rod Baker, um, come up and talk to us right after the game, right on, you know, right on site. So we were really fortunate to uh, be on campus, have a have a, a an individual who really understood um, the pride that that everybody had at at Seton Hall, and so you know PJ, you know. I've gotten to know Raph over the years through my, my work uh, when I was at Turner Broadcasting and, you know, the work that Turner and CBS do every year for the NCAA tournament. And we would laugh all the time and reminisce all the time. Uh, you know, he, he was really one of the first personalities that Seton Hall had coming out of, you know, the basketball realm. But PJ, when he came on my freshman and sophomore year, we were not that good. I think we went to the NIT maybe both years, maybe one of the years, I, I, can't, I can't recall, but we really struggled. But he brought on Mark Bryant, which was a significant get. 
And then he brought three kids in from New York and Daryl Walker, John Morton, and Gerald Green, and then another kid by the name of Ramon Ramos. And that really, you know, really set the stage for a great Seton Hall run that lasted, you know, through the mid 90s until after he departed to go coaching, you know, in the NBA. Um, the only other coach that I think is coming to that level is, is, is Kevin Willard now, where he's been able to sustain and have some consistent success. But, you know, before and after PJ, it, it, it just didn't happen. All right. Now, Sal, you did mention the, the Great Alaskan Shootout. I mean, heading into that tournament, Seton Hall, like you said, they were projected to finish what, seventh in a, a nine-team league in the Big East. So, like, uh, obviously, expectations heading into the year were low. And then you went and defeated Utah, Kentucky, and Kansas in a span of four days. And, and that's basically when uh, the team knew they were going to be good. Uh, from that point, obviously, um, another point from the 1989 season that I wanted to, to touch on was the, the first Georgetown game when top five Georgetown came into the Meadowlands Arena January of 1989 against that Pirates team that was 12-0 at the time, ranked 10th in the nation. Just give us some thoughts on that, that first Georgetown game and, and how special that was and also how much that win meant to the team. Oh, you know, Heaven, you, you hit it right on the head. I still remember the environment in the old, you know, Meadowlands Burn Arena. And the only time I was in the Burn Arena where I heard it, heard it loud was for a Bruce Springsteen concert. Other than that, it, it was always, you know, half filled, whether it was the Nets or, or Seton Hall. And a lot of people probably questioned, could Seton Hall, you know, sell out the arena? Uh, a lot of people didn't think they could. And that game was a sellout. And there was a lot of electricity. Uh, they just returned from the Sugar Bowl Classic, which we got to call down in New Orleans, and they beat Virginia and DePaul. And at the time, if you recall, DePaul wasn't in the Big East, um, and they were they were a really good uh, program. And, and Seton Hall kind of you know beat up on both of those programs. And that Georgetown game was a, was a classic Big East game, and that's probably really the first point that I said to myself, this might be a special season for us. Now you know, a few days later. Uh, we went up to to Syracuse and and we lost to to Syracuse and I think Seton Hall lost six or seven games that year. Three of them were to Syracuse and it was just you know always a bad matchup for us. But that Georgetown game would you know after the NCAA tournament would probably for me rank as one of the great moments in 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 uh, Seton Hall season just because of not only because of the win but just how electric the crowd was. Like you think back to a couple of years ago with Michigan State and, and Miles Powell kind of coming on the court and, and the place was nuts. Um, it was even louder that day in, in, in the Meadowlands Arena, Burn Arena for that Georgetown game. I want to stay on that subject and I'm glad Heaven asked that because during that period, Seton Hall was trying to make a name for themselves against schools like Georgetown, who was led by John Thompson, Syracuse, obviously led by Jim Beheim, St. John's just from across the river, Lou Carnesecca. Sal, as someone who covered the Big East during that time, what was it like having to deal with all of those different characters, whether it's John Thompson, Jim Beheim, and how do you think Seton Hall fared in those matchups as well? 
You know, it's a great question, Michael. Um, you know, right before I got to college, uh, my senior year in high school, three Big East teams went to the Final Four. Uh, you know, Georgetown, Villanova, and St. John's. Uh, and, you know, Villanova famously upset, uh, you know, Georgetown. And, you know, a couple of years later, you saw Providence in the Final Four. You saw uh, Syracuse lose uh, by one point to a, a really good Bob Knight team, uh, Indiana, in, in 1987. Um, so it was the basketball conference. Uh, you know, I still think in the 80s, the Big East, uh, uh, the Big East Conference was the best basketball conference of all time. And, you know, early on, I think Seton Hall took their lumps, uh, you know, in, in the 85, 86, 86, 87 season. And then somewhere in Mark Bryant's uh, junior season, or senior season, excuse me, he took the team on its back and probably allowed P.J. Carlissimo to uh, stay another year because they went on, they won eight games, uh, they finished 500. That was a remarkable feat for a Seton Hall team back then. Uh, PJ was elected uh, Big East Coach of the Year, and I think night in, night out, going against great players in their early years really helped guys like John Morton and Gerald Green and Darrell Walker and Ramon Ramos. They were through the wars, and by the time the second half of their junior year and then their senior year, they were prepared to to uh, you know go on go on a great march. Again, could anyone envision? Uh, a march like they did and, and coming within one point of a national championship? Of course not. But I think we all envision that the program could, you know, take that next step. We just didn't realize what that next step would be and just what a terrific and marvelous ride it was for anyone who was associated with Seton Hall during that time. All right, Sal. So now I, I want to kind of pivot a little bit to the, the NCAA tournament, um, the opening two rounds specifically. So uh, early on, I mean, you had played and beaten Princeton early in the year. So you at least had a bit of preparation for how uh, Southwest Missouri would play, kind of methodical, kind of slow down the pace of the game. And then obviously you had that, that next round matchup against Evansville, where it was a one-point game with about five minutes left to play. So just, I mean, since you were on those games, can you give us a bit of an idea about uh, what it was like, uh, uh, you know, with the, the Southwest Missouri game, uh, obviously that scary moment, with Ramos cracking uh, his head on the court after trying to block a shot, and then that that 13-0 run in that victory against against Evansville. Boy, I think you remember it better than I do, um, Evan. <laughs> quite frankly, uh, what I remember going out to Arizona, and you know that that Southwest Missouri, they really struggled in that game. And you know there was one point I was like, man, are we going to lose this game? It was it was really you know a little bit of a back and forth affair. And, you know, Ramos going down, I don't think he was 100% after that. And I think that impacted Seton Hall a little bit um, through the rest of the run, not having, you know, Ramon at 100%. Um, but I think it really set them up well for the remainder of the tournament because they realized they have to come in, game in and game out. And it's a one and done, survive in advance, as Jim Valvano famously said. So I think those first two games, they survived and they advanced. And, you know, Seton Hall was, uh, you know, in a lot of close games all year long. Uh, and, and a lot of their games were very similar, you know, a little bit nip and tuck back and forth in the first half. And then the second half, the defense would clamp down and, and they would, you know, take control of the game and, and uh, you know, 
31 times that year, they, they came out on, on the winning side. Those first two games, because they were so difficult, because they were so challenging, I think it helped prepare them for the Sweet 16 and then the eventual Final Four. I'm just looking at the NCAA tournament run that Seton Hall went on. And mind you, they were a three seed. So let's not act like Seton Hall didn't belong where they were. But looking past those first two games, it is an absolute murderer's row. You have Indiana, who we talked about with Bob Knight. UNLV, which had a phenomenal run towards the end of the 80s into the 90s. Duke, and then obviously the Michigan game, which is why we're all here. Sal, you were there. You covered all of those games. At any point, did you think Seton Hall had a legitimate chance to not only get to the Final Four, but win it all? It's a great question. Um, After the Indiana game, I really thought, wow, we have a chance to go to the Final Four. And what convinced me, you know, you look back at that Indiana team, they were only two years removed from winning a national championship. And, and remember, Seton Hall was in the West region. All the top four seeds advanced. It kind of played out, right? You had Arizona, you had Indiana, which was a two, Seton Hall a three, UNLV was a four. And, and uh, we got after it. Um, we kind of took control in the second half versus Indiana. Um, it was a great defensive effort by, by Seton Hall. I think uh, Bobby Knight even commented afterwards, you know, one of the best defensive teams he's played against. And, and that's a compliment coming from, you know, Coach Bob Knight, who arguably is the greatest, you know, basketball teacher in the game and, you know, one of the great defensive minds in the game. Um, after that game, I remember it was, a, it was the, the in-between game. And we went to cover the press conference uh, between UNLV and Seton Hall. And Seton Hall came in. Like they did, they were just really a bunch of great guys, very humble. Um, and UNLV, uh, you know, this was pre Larry, pre Larry Johnson, but they still had Stacy Ogman, Greg Anthony, um, uh, Anderson Hunt, if I remember. So they were a really talented team, and they really thought they were going to come in and beat Seton Hall. And and you know, some of their comments, um, I was like, wow, they they think they're going to just kind of you know, run away with this game. And again, it, it started out a little bit like a, like you would expect Jerry Tarkanian, you know, I always thought was an underrated coach um, knew he was going to be in, in a tight game. Uh, and that second half, you know, uh, Gaze played extremely well, but it was the defense in the second half that, you know, shut down uh, their sharpshooter, Anderson Hunt, who, if you know, two nights before launched UNLV into the game by, by beating Arizona with the last second shot. Um, it was the defense that I remember in that game that really shut UNLV down. And throughout the second half, it was so hard to do the game. You know, here I am, a 21-year-old kid, a student, not a professional at all, uh, you know, finding myself being really excited becomes like, holy cow, my school is going to go to the Final Four. And no one, no one could have ever envisioned Seton Hall going to the Final Four. It's like the team in the movie Hoosiers you know, going to play in, in the state championship. That's how I, you know, that's how I felt. Um, But it was that Indiana game when uh, we emerged victorious that I said, we're going to go to the final four. And it was just a matter of 
you know, not if we were going to beat UNLV, but but when, because I really thought we had a, a we were really, really playing well throughout the course of, uh, you know, the, the, that weekend. Yes, yeah, I mean, you and Michael pretty much mentioned it. Those those Indiana and UNLV games pretty much was the turning point, you know, holding such a talented team in the Hoosiers to like three field goals over the final 15 minutes or so. And then with UNLV, I mean, extremely talented team, Stacey Augman and, and everyone that they had, but to hold Stacey Augman to like eight points I think he had on, on four for 12 from the field, just a tremendous showing. Gaze being named most outstanding player, I should say, with 19 points and, and five rebounds in that game against UNLV. Just a, a tremendous run. And, and now, I mean, like you said, you're in the final four against Duke. I mean, the biggest game, honestly, in Seton Hall history to that point, uh, and it didn't get off to the, the best start. Pirates trailing 26 to eight. Since you were in the arena on the call, just give us you know, some, some initial thoughts. Because if, if, if I'm the broadcaster in that scenario, at that point, I'm preparing for the worst. And I'm just hoping Seton Hall doesn't lose by 40 at that point. But just give us your, your thoughts with about 11 minutes left Pirates down 18 points. What were you thinking at that very moment? Yeah, we hadn't played our best basketball. Um, and, you know, throughout the season, you would see, you know, in the first half, maybe Seton Hall go down by, you know, a few buckets, maybe eight points, 10 points. Um, but I thought our best basketball was still in front of us. And I wasn't nervous um, because I've seen this team get off the mat time and time again throughout, you know, throughout the you know, throughout the season. And I thought if we could just, you know, kind of settle down, get into our rhythm um, and just start chipping away and do it by, you know, old fashioned defense. That's what, you know, that's what got us there. And I think, you know, they had five players in that game all score in, in double figures. And, and you know, one guy who, who I don't think got the credit that he deserved was Daryl Walker. I think Daryl Walker was the most consistent player throughout that NCAA tournament run. And maybe, you know, throughout the, you know, the season, because not only could he score inside, he was a great free throw shooter, um, good defender, strong rebounder. Um, and, you know, he played tremendous. And, you know, slowly but surely, uh, Seton Hall started chipping away at, you know, Danny Leitner, uh, 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 what was it? not Christian Leitner and, and Danny Ferry, excuse me, got them both mixed up, mixed up. Uh, and slowly but surely, we started chipping away. And then in the second half, it was the same playbook that you saw versus Indiana. The defense really clamped down and you just, you know, we went from being down, I think, 18 or 20 points to being up, you know, two points, six points, eight points, 10 points, 18 points, where at some point in the second half, you know, you're sitting there calling the game. And I turned to, uh, 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 um, I think it was Andy Bacon who, who was doing the game with me, another Seton Hall student, and saying, we're going to the national championship, national championship game. This is, you know, this is incredible. Um, but that game versus Duke, everything was on full display for the entire nation to see. A really, not the best players. Seton Hall didn't have the best players in the entire country. They had the best team guys who knew how to play together, guys who knew their role, guys who were extremely unselfish, extremely unselfish, guys who would get after it um, defensively, guys who could score like, you know, a Morton and a Gaze, 
but you had guys like Michael Cooper coming off the bench or Franz Volsi coming off the bench or, you know, Nick Katsikas who would kind of come off the bench and hit that clutch three when, when you would need it. So it was very reminiscent all year long. It's just, it was early on Duke got out to that fast lead, but I knew if our guys could just kind of, you know, get into the rhythm of their game that if we could start chipping away, um, we have a really good chance of getting back, you know, getting back in this game. Andrew Gaze had a big part of that. And I've actually watched that game several times, just being at Seton Hall. It's one of the biggest games in program history. And around Seton Hall's campus, Sal, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure Heaven does too. There's a picture of PJ Carlissimo and Brent Musburger talking after the game. And to me, you can say that picture is all about PJ, but I would argue not only does it signify the importance of PJ, but the team. And you talked about how the Pirates, in terms of talent, probably didn't belong on the same court as Duke, but they were a team. They were together. Talk to us about how much players like Andrew Gaze, Ramon Ramos, how much they meant to that Final Four run. Oh, without question. You know, I think Ramon Ramos, who was the Big East Scholar Athlete of, of the Year, um, was just a hard nose. Uh, you couldn't move him inside the paint. Uh, great rebounder, uh, good defender, could score down low. Uh, you know, Gaze had a tremendous basketball IQ. Uh, you know, he could score, he could pass, had, had, had a good feel for the game. You know, Gerald Green was a terrific point guard. Um, Daryl Walker, as you know, I uh, mentioned earlier, just just an all around good power forward. And then John Morton, who, um, you know, John could do it all. John could put the ball on the floor. John could be your point guard. There were points during his Seton Hall career where he was the point guard. Uh, he could score. He could drive the lane. Um, they were a, you know, just a terrific starting five. And then you would get terrific contributions off the bench from a guy like Anthony Avent, who was, you know, arguably the biggest recruit since Mark Bryant um, uh, coming to Seton Hall. Um, you know, Franz Volsi, Seton Hall prep guy, who, again, was a, you know, a top recruit in the state of New Jersey. Um, the, the tremendous contributions that so many guys, they, it, I think they knew their roles. I think every player on that team knew their roles. And on any given night, somebody would step up and be the guy. Maybe it was, you know, Daryl Walker in that first Georgetown game we, we spoke about or John Morton in, you know, the national championship game. But that team could beat you multiple ways. And on any given night, somebody different would step up. And it wasn't uncommon that you would see all five starters in double figures. All right, now, Sal, I kind of want to take a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at things, if you will. Um, heading into a game as, as serious as this, and Michael knows, I mean, we, we've had our, our fair share of big games. And, and the, the rule is for every hour that you think the game will be, you got to do two hours of preparation. So heading into the national championship game, just, just give us a, a, an idea of how – much notes you had, just how much you had to pour over heading into that game? Well, probably I should have did a little more preparation, and, and that's why you guys are going to be really successful in, in your careers. Um, I spent, uh, you know, a couple of nights going to some bars, listening to, which was 
you know, at the time, 1989, maybe pre-grunge. Um, but, you know, we, we had a great time uh, uh, in, in Seattle. Uh, but you're right. We had to also, we knew we were on a business trip. And we also had to uh, take our time and, and prepare. And we got to go to, um, uh, you know, the practices. And we got to go to media days. Uh, we still had our conversations with, with the coaches, even though they were being pulled in, you know, a hundred different directions. And, you know, Seton Hall had a great um, athletic staff, uh, you know, with John Paquette, who was one of the great sports information directors and, and, and the late Larry Keating, uh, who was the AD at the time. They really, you know, they really bought into the student radio station being there. Um, and it was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of preparation. I don't think people listening to this understand how much preparation you know Michael and heaven you guys put in you know for each and every single game it's not easy to call a college basketball game it's not easy to call a game on the radio um that's why I never pursued it because you know I was average at best um but I enjoyed myself tremendously um uh, but it takes a lot of preparation because not only do you have to fill in um you know some downtime but you need to know every single player, whether it's the 12th person on the team or, you know, Glenn Rice. You have to know uh, a little something about them. You have to know their stats. You have to know simple things like like their uniform number. But also you have to be descriptive right in your, you know, in your call right down to, you know, which each team is wearing and, you know, uh, which way are they going, you know, left to right across the radio dial. Um so it takes a tremendous amount of time and preparation. And, and if there's one thing I hope people who are listening to this realize just how much time, you know, both of you guys put into this, uh, you're doing hours upon hours of preparation for just one game. Sal, you mentioned the name, so I'm just going to get right into it now. Yeah. Glenn Rice was the leader of that Michigan team. And I want to bring up something that a lot of people may not know. This 1989 Michigan team predated the Fab Five Michigan team. A lot of people confuse the two, but they, right. they were different teams. What made this 1989 Michigan Wolverines roster so special who were led by not only Glenn Rice, but they had a coaching change right before the NCAA tournament as well? Well, you know, Michael, I think what people forget about that Michigan team, they were very similar to Seton Hall. They were a third seed. Uh, they played, you know, a, a tough Big Ten schedule. Um, I think they won 29 or 30 games that year. Uh, they beat some, you know, big programs, you know, in their march to the NCAA uh, Final Four, including Illinois uh, in the Final Four and, you know, North Carolina. They had five guys on that team that went on to NBA careers. I mean, think about that for a second. Five guys where Seton Hall had John Morton and, and, and you know, before that tragic accident with Ramon Ramos, you know, Ramon um, was with the Portland Trailblazers. You know, that, you know, that's it. And I know Andrew, you know, played a lot of, you know, ball overseas. And I'm just talking the starting five. Obviously, Anthony Avent went on to a great NBA career. Um, but I think they were a little bit similar to Seton Hall. You know, they had... Um, size, they had depth, they had a, a great score in, in Glenn Rice, they had a really tough point guard in Ramil Robinson. You know, Ramil and, and Gerald Green, I, I thought, uh, uh, you know, played very similar. They were both really good, you know, handling the ball. They could get to the hole. 
Uh, they were really tough guys on, you know, uh, as defenders and, and, and on the court. And I don't think people remember just how good of a, a, of a team that Michigan was. It wasn't like they were this underdog and had a coaching change and, and just happened to win a national championship. They were one of the top teams all year. They were one of the top 16 teams at the very least, you know, in the field that year. And they won 29, 30 ball games in, in uh, you know, a great, great, great Big Ten conference. All right. Now, Sal, we spent a decent bit of time discussing the stars of the Seahawks team, like John Morton, Andrew Gaze, and Ramon Ramos, like you mentioned, uh, Daryl Walker and, and Gerald Green. Uh, I wanted to go a little bit further down the, the roster and touch on Pookie Wigginton. Now, Pookie is, you know, while he might not have had the, the most illustrious Seahawks career, he has been immortalized in hip hop history sure. since uh, Fife Dog won or wore, I should say, his, his jersey uh, in uh, a music video. Pookie Wigginton somehow making it into a Tribe Called Quest music video is just the, the most insane piece of hip hop history to me. And I love that Seton Hall is immortalized forever in that. So just, can you talk a little bit about what Pookie meant to this team or what you just observed from this 5-4 this guard averaging under two points a game, you know, somehow just managing to, to make such a huge mark on this roster? Yeah, and you know, I think, um... I followed Pookie's uh, professional career a little bit, and, and I know uh, he's done a lot of work with Kevin Hart as well. Um, and he's made, you know, a, a, a terrific name for himself in the entertainment and, and, and comedy worlds. Um, you know, Pookie came on and maybe the best stretch of his uh, basketball career at Seton Hall that season was right in the very beginning at the Great Alaska Shootout. I think he was the tournament MVP that, you know, in that, uh, in that tournament, if I recall. Um, and, you know, again, I think he embodied um, what Seton Hall was all about. Uh, you know, he came in, he was a little bit older uh, as, a, as a junior college transfer, um, and he fit right into the team. Um, you know, again, not one person was bigger than another person. He fit right in. I think, uh, you know, everybody kind of gravitated towards him because he just had this great personality. He was a funny guy. Um, and he could come off the bench and give you a handful of minutes every night. Um, he was hard to guard because you would think, oh, you know, he's only five foot four, but he was, you know, quick, hard to guard. He was struggling, I think, all season with a knee injury. So that did limit, you know, some of, you know, some of his minutes. But throughout a season, there's a lot of storylines. And I always believe during a season, every game, somebody's going to step up and do something. And Pookie Wigginton had, you know, a few of those games throughout the year where he came in and stepped up and really helped the Seton Hall ball club. I think an integral part of the Seton Hall bench and really one of the reasons why Seton Hall was, was successful. They had, they could go 10 deep. They had a, a really strong starting five and they had, uh, uh, you know, five guys coming off the bench that gave them terrific minutes. I don't know about you guys, but if I was in a music video, no offense to Pookie Wigginton, he's probably not the first guy on that Seton Hall roster. I'm going to wear his jersey. Personally, if, if I was in that era, I might go with John Morton because of what he did in that national championship game. Just absolutely carried the Pirates on his back. Sal, his performance in that game, what was that like watching that? 
Well, it was like you know, it was it was like watching a, a great you know heavyweight championship fight or a great you know boxing match like Hagler versus Hearns between you know John Morton and Glenn Rice. Uh, they just kept you know going back and forth and trading baskets and you know really. Um, you know, John, I, 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 if I recall, he scored 35 in that game. And it was one of the rare games where um, it was only, you know, John, I think Gerald and, and Darrell played a really solid game, but they didn't get a lot of contributions from the bench that game. I think the bench might have only scored like six or, you know, eight points. You know, Andrew had the tough task of, of guarding Glenn Rice, and I think that impacted his offense. Uh, uh, you know, I think his first basket didn't come until overtime. So, you know, if John Morton doesn't step up in that game, um, you know, Seton Hall gets blown out. And, and you know, they started slow in that game. Uh, you know, I think at one point Seton Hall was down 10 in the first half. Um, and then it was really in that second half that, you know, John Morton put on a terrific show, whether it was driving to the basket, whether it was some terrific step back threes that he was taking. Um, you know, I think he hit, uh, you know, nine, nine free throws, if, if I recall, um, you know, nine out of 10 from, you know, from the line. Uh, but then on the other side, Glenn Rice, you know, put on a great show. And I've been watching the Final Four, and I've been to a bunch of Final Fours since then. And that still remains, you know, two of the greatest performances I've witnessed between two, you know, opposing players. Glenn Rice would come down, score a basket, and John would say, not so fast. You know, and, and he would attack the hole or he would, you know, he would bury a three. And I think it goes down as one of the great all-time performances in, you know, in modern-day Seton Hall basketball history. All right, Sal. So, I mean, Michael pretty stole my question there with the John Morton's performance and how him and Glenn Rice had a duel for the ages. But, I mean, at this point, we, we've danced around the topic a little bit. What were your thoughts on that foul call? Now, now this is obviously a point of contention for generations of Seton Hall fans. Seton Hall up one with about 25 seconds or so left remaining. And then the referee, uh, Mr. Clarity, calls that foul on green, sending Ramil Robinson to the line. I mean, just, just give us your unfiltered thoughts uh, on that moment and, and being in that environment and just the, the – the energy in the arena at the time. Well, I remember saying to myself, well, I, I, I can't curse on the radio. So, um, you know, I'll have to call it straight. And I, I remember calling it straight. I even remember calling when, when Ramil hit the two free throws, uh, you know, just like a straight call. Um, and, and, you know, you look back and, and, you know, oddly enough, I haven't gone back and watched that game. I think maybe with the exception of one, one or two times I haven't really watched the game, but I've obviously seen the, the foul call every year it, it's played. Um, and I said to myself, it's unfortunate it's coming down to that. I didn't have the best angle at the time, so I couldn't tell if, you know, uh, you know Gerald made contact or not. Um, I just recall the previous set. We had the ball, uh, you know, we're up. Uh, we were working the clock down and John might've been his only bad shot of the game. Uh, it was an air ball and uh, uh, Michigan came down with a ball with probably nine seconds left and they raced up the court. If John makes that, you know, that basket, um, 
we win the game. Or maybe John misses, but there's a little bit of a scramble for a rebound. They might not have enough time to get the ball, you know, down the court. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to say, hey, that call, you know, that call is not made. You know, we go on to win. But, you know, Ramil Robinson hit two free throws. As a matter of fact, he hit nine free throws in that game. This is a guy who was like a 60% free throw shooter. And I think he hit nine of 10 in that game. Uh, we missed down the stretch a couple of front end one on one opportunities. You know, so I, I always think of it as, you know, it's what you do throughout the course of 45 minutes um, that that really determines a game. But still, the, you know, the call to this day, you know, will always haunt all of us because uh, you want to see the players have a say in in the final outcome. And, and you want to see the referee put the whistle in his pocket. And I think, you know, I've, I've read things where Cloggerty has, you know, admitted like, hey, he wishes he put that, you know, put that whistle, you know, in his pocket. Um, but, you know, I, I think the person who I think always sums it up the best is Bill Raftery. I've heard him say this numerous times. Um, you never remember the team that lost the national championship game. You just don't. I, I, I can't even tell you, you know, two years ago who, who, who lost. But you remember this team because of the way PJ and all the players handled it afterwards and you wouldn't expect them to handle it any other way uh they handled it with class and dignity they were all up there uh you know uh, pj with the five starters at the at the post-game press conference you know the locker room you know clearly you know everybody was sad but there was still also this excitement and and um i don't think we've ever seen a team handle a tough call like that with more dignity and grace than we did in 1989 with PJ and the players. You know what? I'm glad we're having this conversation because I feel like that game changed everything for Seton Hall's future. And I actually compare PJ Carlissimo a lot to Chris Beard, who was actually the head coach at Texas Tech who lost to Virginia in the championship game. The reason why I bring up those two is because had Chris Beard won that game and Texas Tech would have won the national championship, I don't think he would have left. I think he would have stayed at Texas Tech despite the rest of the two seasons after. The same thing can be said for PJ, in my opinion, because yes, Seton Hall had success. They made the Elite Eight afterwards with Terry DeHair and a bunch of other guys, the Sweet 16, but they were on the door of winning a national championship and they couldn't do it. I, I want to know your opinion on this, Sal, because from my perspective, I felt like because Seton Hall didn't win, that allowed PJ to go, you know what? I did the best I could there. Let me pursue something else in the NBA. What do you think about that, everything that happened afterward? Well, you know, I think that, you know, immediately afterwards, if you recall, PJ had the opportunity to go to Kentucky. Yep. Kentucky comes calling, you know, one of the great, great basketball programs of all time. They still are to this day. Um, it was a foregone conclusion that PJ was just going to go to Kentucky and, and, you know, all that he'd been through and, and, you know, there were a lot of, you know, it's easy to be a PJ Carlissimo fan, uh, you know, after 1989, but pre 1988, 
there were a lot of fans, a lot of alums, a lot of students, a lot of supporters who weren't PJ Carlissimo fans. And it would, it would have been very easy for him to say, hey, I'm leaving Seton Hall. And I thought he showed just a tremendous amount of loyalty to Seton Hall, to the not only uh, the team, but the school, the administrators who, who stuck by him. And there was, you know, another, you know, another what, five or six years that it was a, you know, a terrific run. And um, so I, I see your point. Like if, if Seton Hall wins, is it like a Jay Wright situation where, you know, success breeds more success. And now all of a sudden you're in the basketball hall of fame because you, you not just won one national championship, but you won two. Um, I don't know. You, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, uh, I, I just think that PJ showed a tremendous amount of loyalty when he really didn't have to. Um, and he stayed what five or six more years and then wanted to pursue, you know, just that next challenge. Uh, he could have stayed at Seton hall uh, for, for years and years and years and, and, um, would have been successful and, you know, in my, you know, my opinion, but you, you know, you see it time and time again, you, you know, you saw it with Greg Shiano at Rutgers, right. Uh, you see coaches who want to take that, that next step, but, uh, you know, again, I, I, I think back to that spring when Kentucky came calling and PJ said, no, imagine if he said, yes, what happens to Rick Pitino? You know, Rick leaves the Knicks to go and coach Kentucky. So it kind of just set up, uh, you know, Rick Pitino for that next level that, um, you know, really catapulted his career to that, you know, to that next level as well. All right. Now, Sal, you, you touched on uh, the team's demeanor after the loss. Now, obviously, me just speaking personally, I, I hate to lose. And when suffering a loss like that, you know, sometimes you may feel inclinated to, to point fingers or, you know, to deflect or, or to even just blame the, the referee outright. However, Seton Hall, the, the players and the coaches, none of them did that. And uh, that was really one of the, the highlights, you know, it wasn't even uh, in the game, but that was one of the highlights, you know, how they handled themselves after the defeat. So could you just focus a little bit more on that just, more specifically, you know, PJ not throwing the referee under the bus and the players, you know, respecting Michigan and not wanting to take away from what they did. You know, I, again, you, you, you see teams and you see coaches from time to time who may not react in, in the same manner. And the fact that, you know, 30 some odd years later, we're still talking about this game and we're still talking about how PJ and the players handled the situation, you know, speaks volumes. And I remember uh, coming back uh, on, on the flight and the next night the, the bus pulled in and it was really, if, if I recall, just like an impromptu uh, pep rally. Uh, it was, you know, around eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. Uh, the bus is pulled up. The, there's probably like a thousand, 2000 students, uh, uh, which is a lot for Seton Hall, right? Uh, you know, all present. Uh, and, you know, PJ got up on stage and I remember just listening to his words and saying, this is the same guy who, you know, 24 hours earlier lost, you know, the game of his, you know, career by, you know, a tough foul, but yet he is still up here thanking all of us for showing up and thank you, you know, thank, you know, saying thanks to everybody for the support that, 
that they provided to this team, um, you know, all season long. And I really think that it, that, that warmth for Seton Hall extended beyond the campus. I think it, you know, was carried throughout the state of New Jersey. You know, I, I had a lot of friends in different schools, um, you know, across New Jersey uh, who watched that game and everybody was, you know, rooting for Seton Hall. Um, they were a fun team to watch. They were a likable team. And I think what transpired after the game came as no surprise to anybody who knew the players and who knew the coaching staff, because that's who they were. That's who they, you know, um, that, that's how they handled themselves all year long. They were, they were just a really good bunch of individuals who played with a lot of dignity and class. Sal, you've been a follower of Seton Hall long after you've graduated. As, as the fan, is there any game that you've watched for Seton Hall that has come close to that national championship game? You know, nothing will ever come close to that national championship game um, because, you know, the magnitude of the game um, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, Seton Hall came out of nowhere, you know, a few seasons earlier to, to have this kind of success. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to, to see a lot of Seton Hall games since, um, uh, you know, 2016, I was with my, my son, who's now a freshman at, at Indiana University and uh, watching Seton Hall beat Villanova. What, you know, that, that, that was great. Um, two years ago, uh, you know, Miles Powell putting on a show against a really tough Michigan State team, even though, you know, even though they lost. Um, I think the... 1991 Big East tournament when Ollie Taylor hit a couple of buckets at the buzzer to win the game and then beating a really, really good Georgetown basketball team in the Big East championship was great. And then, um, uh, you know, losing to UNLV, which um, I, I got to know Greg Anthony through, through, through uh, uh, my professional career. And I remember talking to him about that that 1991 Elite Eight game, and he said, Seton Hall was one of the teams we really didn't want to play. And I recall him saying to me, we, we knew, you know, we knew we would beat them because we thought we were more talented, but they were a tough team. You challenge that team to a fight, they might take you up on it. So we couldn't intimidate them. We'd have to go out and, and, and play that game. Uh, you know, that game, you know, stands out. Um, the next year, the, 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 the battles of the Hurleys, um, uh, you know, I, I remember that game getting national attention on Good Morning America um, because it was, you know, uh, Bobby and, and Danny going up, you know, against one another. So, uh, you know, I've seen some great games over the years, some really good games recently under, under Kevin Willard, but nothing will, you know, come close to that final four weekend or that, that three weeks in March when we had the great run. Um, uh, because it was so special, uh, not just because of the great basketball we played, uh, not because of the, the, you know, we came out of nowhere, but because it was just a group of guys that um, we all knew as students and we all knew them to be just really, really good guys. All right. The, I have just one last question for you, Sal. Uh, we've spent this entire episode reminiscing over just a, a tremendous season. And, you know, for it to, to come, you know, so close on, on the, the doorstep of a national championship, then to just fall short, that's definitely a little unfortunate. And you, you mentioned, obviously, how the team handled itself 
in the, the, the days past that. And obviously it was such a tough loss and Seahawks had some, some big games since then, but just kind of to, to wrap up, give me your, your final thoughts on being able to document such a special team and what that meant for you in, in your senior year as sports director. Gosh, you know, it was just one of the, you know, great opportunities I had as a student. Uh, I was so very, very fortunate that uh, the school uh, gave us the resources to uh, go to every single game that year. And we covered every single game. And we had a very small sports staff. Uh, you know, if I recall, there was only maybe four or five of us, you know, on the staff. So we were you know, not only we were calling games and going on the road, but we were doing, um, you know, hall line and doing all the interviews, you know, back to, you know, your earlier question about preparation, a lot of prep work, you know, went into it. Um, we were fortunate that at that time, the, the athletic staff, they were very supportive. You know, John Paquette was just, you know, a great, uh, a great resource to us, very supportive, you know, the late Larry Keating, uh, uh, you know, Sue Regan, um, so, you know, so many terrific uh, people who supported us along the way. And, uh, you know, then I, I remember signing off and I had to thank my parents because uh, they gave me the opportunity to go to Seton Hall University and have the opportunity to, uh, you know, work on WSOU and have the opportunity to call basketball games. And then, you know, again, never, no one ever would, dream of calling a national championship game uh and so it was a lot of fun some great memories that um you know you you, you keep uh you know near and dear uh and and uh and you know i hope you both recognize uh just the opportunities that you have calling uh you know big east basketball and i hope you get to have that same experience this year well, Sal, we hope so, too. If this team were to make a miracle run the, the same way that 1989 team did, I think me and Michael would be very appreciative of that. But that'll do it for us here on Pirate Rewind. For my analyst, Michael Daly, and our special guest, Sal Petruzzi, I have been Heaven Hill saying so long, take care, and thank you for listening.